The Defense Department is tightening access to classified information in the wake of the Discord leaks. As widely reported, a Pentagon review found gaps in the oversight of information security policies and programs. Now Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is directing a bevy of new actions to address those issues. For an update, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And review for us, if you would, Justin, what the review exactly found that had both cyber and physical access issues. Yeah, it basically found that while DOD relies on a culture of trust and accountability for those who are granted access to classified information, and the overwhelming majority of personnel actually meet that trust, there are gaps in the oversight and accountability measures of how DOD tracks folks who have access to classified information, how they track classified information facilities and things like that, where folks actually access that type of sensitive data. And again, this all came out after a review Secretary Lloyd Austin ordered in April. That was after 21-year-old Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira was arrested for being the alleged perpetrator of these Discord leaks. And he's, of course, accused of sharing military secrets with his Discord forum users, including photographs of secret and top secret materials. So this DOD review didn't look exactly At the specifics of Teixeira's events, because that's subject to, of course, a court case right now, but it looked more broadly at where they could make some improvements. And what are some of the improvements they see ahead? What did Lloyd Austin specifically name here? Well, first, there's better tracking of personnel who have access to classified information. Austin is directing all DOD components to come up with a plan for ensuring that their personnel are included and accounted for in designated security IT systems. So they actually have a roster of those folks that's up to date. And then second, they should have a plan to assign all DOD personnel to a security management office where they specialize in security procedures so they know who exactly is in access. And then DOD also wants to centralize oversight of these different specialized classified facilities that are spread out at military bases across the country and the world. Austin is actually directing the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security to set up a centralized tracking system for both sensitive compartmented information facilities, SCIFs, and special access program facilities. So that's something that the Pentagon will be setting up here shortly. Yeah, that really recognizes the fact that you have a physical and cyber complex that's all mixed together. You have people handling things that are electronic in SCIFs, which are physical And so I guess the policy recognizes this all works together as one whole system. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, to your point about physical and electronic, Austin is also directing DOD offices to ensure that they're actually budgeting for the technologies uh, that can detect electronic devices that might enter a SCIF, as well as mitigation measures that could block those devices from working in certain ways in a SCIF. This is something that they're required to have, but maybe they haven't done across the board. So that's one other thing that's happening here. And this is ultimately an insider threat of the nth degree, you, you know, with this uh, text, this uh, Air National Guardsman. And so it sounds like what they're doing is getting a handle on the insider threat itself, because this was not an external hacking situation or a phishing scheme. Austin is, is really trying to uh, centralize oversight of the insider threat program and, and resources as well. He's directing DOD officials to come up with a plan within 90 days for establishing a joint management office for insider threat 
and cyber capabilities. So again, looking at that kind of blended threat with the cyber and digital aspect of these things in, in 2023. And that organization would oversee things like user activity monitoring, where you're really logging keystrokes and clicks and things like that, as well as improving threat monitoring in general across all DOD networks. You know, the Insider Threat Program has been around for a decade, but there's been questions about the extent to which, you know, DOD organizations have actually implemented those requirements. So clearly this new joint program office would put some more of a focus on that. And has there been any further discussion of the DOD's commitment to zero trust? This is something they say they're on a path to. The timeline is pretty far out there till they say they're all zero trust. But it seems like a zero trust mechanism might have prevented some of these documents from access by whatever game, you know, Teixeira was playing or whatever stupid social network he was on. Well, you know, this this review and the memo that Austin signed out directing all these actions didn't explicitly mention zero trust. But I should note that the DOD chief information officer's office is in charge of many of these taskings, including you know, user activity monitoring and enhancing accountability for and, and oversight of top secret information sharing. That CIO's office has made zero trust a major priority for DOD to reach by 2027. So they're going to be involved and I'm sure they're going to be pulling some zero trust aspects into all of this. And what about the security clearance process? Because the people you take in are ultimately the people you have to trust with all of this information. And is there anything they're looking at there and continuous vetting and all of this to uh, try to prevent some of this? Yeah, this is interesting. They did not, you know, mention the security clearance process uh, and changes that need to be made to the security clearance process too explicitly in the memo. But what they did do is direct the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, which conducts most clearance investigations across DOD, to set up a Pathfinder project with the Air Force, where they're going to look at ways to improve sharing continuous vetting information across all military departments. So obviously folks move between different organizations within their services. Oftentimes folks move from military to civilian to perhaps another service. And there's a lot of continuous vetting information, criminal information, things like that, that's picked up along the way. But it's not necessarily shared in every case across security departments, across all those different organizations. So that's one thing DCSA and the Air Force is going to look are going to look at as part of this Pathfinder project. And then, of course, there's the larger information sharing, the post 9-11 type of information sharing, not just about security, but about national security issues. And that could get pinched with this new regime that Lloyd Austin is talking about. Yeah, the Pentagon recognized that there have been concerns that the reaction to this incident could be a, an overreaction and they could clamp down on the type of inf information sharing that leads to obviously good outcomes. So the department in its memo or its fact sheet on this review explicitly says that it's mindful of the need to balance information security with requirements to get the right information to the right people at the right time. That's a quote. And DOD says as it implements these new recommendations and actions, they're going to carefully guard against, quote, any overreaction, overcorrection, rather, that may impede progress on information sharing and these different operating models that allow DOD to successfully carry out its national defense strategy. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. 
they never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire 
Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.